step back into awareness of what was happening in my mind was horrible. But that creator also needed to be created. And whatever created that needed to be created. And on and on and on. Change is best done lightly. Yeah. Once, once we realize that we're not the thoughts, there's a, there's a sovereignty that emerges. Welcome, friends. Today, I am very happy to be joined by Nataraj, who is my friend and community member, also living here at Sachidananda Yogaville Ashram. Previously, he's also lived at Shivananda Ashram in the Bahamas. And just a little bit about him, uh, Nataraj was a former run-of-the-mill business executive who traded the world for an ashram life. I'd love to ask him a little bit about that as well as many other things. Thanks so much for taking the time to, to do this episode with us, Nataraj. Hi, Avi. Great to be with you. Thanks. <laughs> so I guess I'll start with that. Why? Why have you made this choice to now live in an ashram community? Oh, <laughs> um, well, I think, I think the short version is that it suits me. <laughs> it's uh this is, this is the way I prefer to, to be now. And, um, as, you, as is mentioned in the, in the bio, um, you know, I, I had a, a pretty good life. I had many conveniences and a lot of indulgences and, um, and, and somehow just with all that I had, uh, a loving family, everything, you know, uh, but, but still some somehow wasn't happy. Um, not to say that I wasn't happy. I, I don't know how to say, but there was something missing. And I didn't know what it was. Now on the other side, I, uh, knowing a more sort of abiding happiness, I, I can sort of see what, what was missing. And so now anyway, um, you know, some six years after some initial shifts. Um, this is just how I prefer to be. Um, I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't mind when I go back into the world and uh, to be with friends and family and whatnot. But um, this is a, this is a nice way to live. It's very simple, very peaceful. Would you say that you have different priorities now? For sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, much more simplified. Um, you know, I don't know how to say, it. I guess I was living that life that, um, <clears throat> that, you know, most, most people live and it was wonderful while it was wonderful and it was difficult while it was difficult. And I don't know to say, I guess that, um, Once you see through the, the the cause and effect of the attachment to things and the complications of living in that way, it just is. It's not even an austerity obviously, right? I mean, it's um, not striving for anything. Striving to uh, um, to do what the yogis call tapas or anything like that. This is just. Um, 
this is this is just better for me. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah, I like I like what you said, just it suits me more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's how I feel too. Yeah. It's like what are the what are the components that that suit you more here? Like what specifically are are you receiving here from this life that that you like? Well, one of the one of the greatest things, um, it's it's so simple, but is the food. <laughs> I find it very difficult to uh to eat well. <laughs> when I'm not at the ashram, not to say it's not possible, but it's expensive and, and, uh, and takes a lot of thought. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, that's a, that's a great advantage of being in the ashram is just being able to eat healthy food all of the time without having to spend much effort on it <laughs> or money. Yeah. What about the, the quality of people that, that are around? I mean, one of my favorite things is that, you know, I can sit down with a person like you for lunch and yeah. we can have these connections and these conversations um, that, I don't know, they're so sweet. Yeah. They're so filled with value. Um, is that your experience too? Is that something that's, that's important, the way that you've been able to connect with other people around here? Yeah. You know, it's funny because, um, what comes to mind is birds of a feather flock together. My grandmother used to say that. And when I was a golfer, I hung around golfers, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, now that I'm a, you know, a spiritual mendicant or, uh, a yogi, um, I, I hang around people with similar aspirations and interests. Um, and, and I, you know, and I guess I could say that I find it more meaningful, but is it more meaningful? I don't know. And, uh, but, but I, but I do enjoy that, that, um, by and large, um, uh, people, um, don't, don't generally come to an ashram unless they have a, a taste for something other, you know, something different. And, uh, so that, that makes it a really nice place to, to interact with people in earnest and, uh, an intimacy that's a little bit, what I find to be a little bit more authentic. But but it's not better. I wouldn't say it's better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even mentioning it's not better, like moving away from this better and worse type of thing. Is that important to you? Have you noticed um, maybe an old habit tendency to rank? Oh, I, I, this is my preference. I like this more than I, I like that thing. And have you been able to move beyond that? And what is that like to move beyond um, better and worse? Well, this is kind of fun because I really think the the whole game is about awareness and self-awareness, even of the, you know, and especially of the ego self, right? Which is when I, when I'm able to bring the cause and effect, the, um, uh, of my own, um, of my own experience, then I can see that the hangover <laughs> in the waiting room of, you know, my preferences or desires or my expectations of how I want things to go. And if I have those things and, and I'm able to see them, I can see around the corner and, and see that they're just, it's not, it's not a good way to be happy. <laughs> so it, to me, the whole, the whole game is, is, um, is, is, is really shining the light on the, 
the the sort of the the tapestry of the the identities, you know, and um, and once we do that, um, they kind of fall away naturally, because you know, really, what we're all looking for is is uh, you know, I mean like this fly that's absolutely tormenting you right now. I was just going to start talking about this fly. Right? (laughs) You know? I mean, (laughs) they talk about the guru and everything, right? I mean, around Yoga Bell, right? Everything is Guru Dev or the guru. And of course, it's true in a a very subtle way. And, uh, you know, but what will I let disturb my peace? Will I let my preferences disturb my peace? If, if, if food isn't cooked the right way, am I going to gripe about it at the lunch or the dinner table? No, no. <laughs> no. Right, no I was thinking just, about it's, it's too facile to give, give, give away the, the peace and the contentment, the happiness it's over, over such trivialities as preferences. Yeah. It seems so tricky, right? It's like automatically, you know, I thought, okay, we have a preference here where this fly wasn't around. <laughs> right. Right. But this fly is around right now. Um, yeah. And how to just settle <laughs> into that, right? And right. also how to make a decision about like, do I do something to try to fix the problem and change it? Or do I just right. accept the situation as it is and deal with it? Well, that fly landed on the tip of my nose several times. I mean, <laughs> I mean what kind of comedy show were we running? Here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and and it's what's interesting, too, is that in in the, the real sort of looking th- through this, the, the construct of, of, of how we uh, how we identify as individuals, how I identify as an individual and how I engage with and interact with the, the, the outside world. What's the play between inside and outside? And, you know, preferences are a very they're like a subtle uh, on ramp into opinions, you know, which then grow into beliefs and then grow into belief systems. Right. And, and, uh, and, and now we're completely bound, <laughs> you know? And so as we exit the, the gross, as I exited the, the, the gross of the, the known and the unknown belief systems, right. The ones that were, that I was aware of, and attached to, and the ones that I was unaware of that were just part of my, you could, I guess I call it my subconscious identity structure. And, and once, and then, and then you began, then I began to notice opinions and and how, how really absurd it was. And then, and then, and then after opinions, after the absurdity of opinions uh, uh, became clear to me, then, then, then I start to look at preferences and then, and then when you see the absurdity of preference, then, then it gets even subtler into thought patterns, right? And then into the thought itself. And, and, the, and the, the crazy thing is that, that really this sort of reverse journey back to the, the subtle, uh, the sort of atoms of our reality, which is thought, you know, the atomic structure of, of our perceived reality being thought, um, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's, uh, it's, it's both at first disturbing and then, and then incredibly liberating, just funny, really. <laughs> but, but when, when we, when we, when we sort of 
you know, push through the the miasma of of our beliefs, opinions, preferences, thought patterns, you know, the the vasanas and vrittis that the yogis refer to in in, uh, uh, the the sutras, then, um, you know, what's what remains when all of that is peeled away? It's a it's a fascinating journey. I find like this well to be so deep though. Like I don't, I don't know. Bottomless. It's totally bottomless. It's like, it seems that having opinions or preferences is so entrenched in the way that I operate, right? Like even going back to food, right? Like at at the start, right? I have a preference to have the food here, right? versus outside of here. I prefer to live in an ashram. I'm not, so it's like, how do we, like, is it even a reasonable goal to not have, um, to not have preferences or desires or to, to make this, like, I feel like I need to be making decisions and they have to be based off something. So they have to be based off of my opinion of what I think would be better for me. Right. Uh, yeah, no, it's funny too, because it's so, it's so subtle. Right. But like, and I thought this for a while, like, uh, the preference is the problem. No, no, no. The preference is not the problem at all. The opinion is not the problem. Even the belief is really not the problem. It's the relationship that the I has to the preference, opinion, or belief. It's the, the sense of separateness, the sense of individuality, the sense of distinctiveness, the sense of pride or, or reverse pride, you know. That it's my attachment to it that's the problem. <laughs> I think it informs who I am. It doesn't actually, you know. I still have preferences, obviously, and um, and have opinions too. I have opinions about opinions, clearly, because <laughs> you know. But it's just it's just when we see through the you know when we see through how sticky it is when we attach to it then we can handle it much more lightly, you know, a bit like uh, holding water gently. And, you you know, eventually it's going to slip through the fingers, you know, but, but it's not a grip. It's not, you know, it's no longer like that. So that was my next question. Like what, what is the antidote for taking my opinions, my preferences? So seriously getting really worked up about them. What's the antidote for that? I think there are lots of them. You know, there's many paths to this. My own particular experience and and what I'll say is this lifetime is knowing, seeing what is, what is an opinion? How did I arrive at it? And how do I, what's my relationship with it? You know, what's my geometry, (laughs) subject and object geometry with uh, the, the eye that has an opinion? What, what's what's fascinating to, to me is that what I what I found, and, you know, and I've, I've been doing this for, for six years, pretty much as my full time career is, is contemplation, <laughs> which I suppose to a lot of people would be a waste of time. But I assure you, it has not been. <laughs> but the, the objects of awareness, let's just take opinions, for example. They help me uncover who I think I am. Right. Who. The, the aspect of, we call it ego, which all, is also not a problem, right? But if, if I can identify what my opinion is, then it helps me uncover, you know, weed out who it is that I think I am that holds that opinion. And that now 
It's that identity that holds that opinion. If I can release that or step behind it and see compassionately, you know, the, the, the aspect of the ego that holds that opinion to not judge it because, well, that's its own thing. But if I can step back and have a nurturing attitude towards the one that has opinions um, and, and, and from there also recognize how it, it, it enmeshes me in this um, cycle of cause and effect, it's binding. But once, once you see through, once you see the patterns of the binding nature of attachments and, and hold that in a, in a self-forgiveness, a self-compassion, a self-love, um, then it can just vanish without, without much more effort. That, that the seeing in the light of awareness, um, the, the ignorance is to the, the, the play of this looping, this cycling of experience. Once it's seen, it, it loses its it loses its power over it. <laughs> so, so the the, the answer to, to the question to me is knowing, is, is seeing, seeing the the patterns of um, of identity, of experience, behavior, um, thought, emotion. Once I see that from a non judgmental standpoint, then I can be free of it. <laughs> and I think it's fun to 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 you know to sort of pick away at the tapestry of of this uh, what I call myself is some mixture of ego and whatever else. So it's like it's seeing the mechanisms of the game. Is that what you're what, what you're saying? Is that instead of like kind of getting stuck in the game, yeah. I I'm. I'm seeing or trying to see how the game works. And by doing that, I'm not as stuck in my character, so to speak, because I see my character working, operating within the larger tapestry of it all. That's such a great way. It's uh, I get the image of a chess board and a chess game. I mean, how could you possibly play chess if you don't know the rules of the game? And yet we do. And, and um, I could say it this way gently. I mean, this is not to be judgmental, but it's kind of, it's fun to me. Like, you know, for a while I, I had one, one option. I could move forward one square and I was a pawn. <laughs> that was my only option. I didn't really know I was playing and I was always the first one sacrificed, you know, and, and yeah, I could call that attachment. And, and as we free ourselves, you know, from, from this sort of the binding nature of the, uh, uh, I keep using the word attachment here, so I'll just stick with that. Um, you, you begin to, uh, the identity becomes a little bit more fluid. Uh, there's more latitude. I have more, we have more moves available to us, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, where the, where the queen can navigate the board, you know, more or less. And the king doesn't need to. <laughs> 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 so uh, uh, yeah i think that's it's it's important to know the the rules of the game and, and we think we do but but or i could say i i thought i did and, and i just didn't understand how all of this works <laughs> will we ever know how it all works yes you think so while yes, we're alive I'm, I'm certain of it hmm. 
Yes. It's, it's, it's right here. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, the, the clues to it are, are in everything, every last thing. Yeah. The, the clues to, to that are in. <laughs> All right. Then let me ask you a question <laughs> that I've been contemplating. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's a game that we're in. Right. And something needed to create the game. Right. The creator, God, divine force, whatever you want to call it. And what I kind of had a thought that I never had before, but that everything needs a creator. So there's a creator of, of this game that we're playing here but that creator also needed to be created and whatever created that needed to be created and on and on and on. Everything needs a creator as far as I can see. What's that about? (laughs) How can I understand that? Right. When does it end? How How can I possibly understand that? Well, that's the, I mean, that's what the sages will say is, is the fundamental limitation of the mind is that it's reflective. And, and so that question asked by uh, a me that is, is using the mind, the reflective uh, tool <laughs> to inquire, it's a hall of mirrors. There's no, you know, there's no end to the reflectivity of that. And so, and so really, you know, our only hope to, um, to know that is, is to be free of thought. <laughs> and and that's the that's kind of really um it's it's the imperative for um, uh, for for gradually you know developing i guess we could say mindfulness and and and, and some semblance of peace and eventually yeah we, we can actually be free of thought and, and be that that awareness that um, that, that I guess in a way you could say precedes thought and, and in there there's knowing without learning and there's it's, so it you know the sages talk about it it's nothing new but um, but yeah from from the sense of to come back to this reflective from the sense of me from even the sense of I or I am it, it is reflective it's and there's always something that can pretend to leap behind it to be the creator of the created. You know, it's it's super fun to me this geometry of subject object relationship, right? And the, the yogis and the sages, you know, talk about the subject and object and and how um, and in this relationship. And there's no end to um, subjectifying oneself or or objectifying others. And in so doing, really objectifying oneself. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I wonder if it, uh, but, but anyway, so that's, that's the game is um, uh, the, the, the real power comes when, um, when we have mastery over thought and mind rather than, 
enslaved to it. <laughs> will that mastery come as we foster this relationship with with silence, with no thinking? Right, like searching for this balance yeah. of like kind of what you're saying, like it's not only fun but fruitful to think about the mechanisms of the game and to try to understand it and right? using my mind and my thoughts to do that. But then also just let, letting go of that and having no, like that's what I come to understand even through the mind of understanding how the game works. I see that to even keep searching and understanding it, maybe I'm not playing the game as well as if I just let it all go. Yeah. That's my experience, Avi, is, is, is different than a lot of the teachings that, that I've you know, been exposed to and rejected, frankly. <laughs> um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that, in my experience, I have not found it fruitful to try and control the mind. I found it fruitful to recognize that these thoughts are not mine, <laughs> um, that, uh, that they, they don't originate from me. They don't emanate from me. I could say, you know, from a, a perspective of experience or perceptually, they, they flow through what I call me or my mind. But, um, and, and of course, it, it, it's saying that I'm absolutely responsible for them as well. I'm, I'm the host, you know, it's my house. And I'm responsible for everything that happens in this, in this house or this temple, you could say. And, uh, and so, you know, to, to attach to, to these, these thoughts and to bring them into action. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. There's, this is not shirking responsibility or accountability. It's the opposite. It's once, once we realize that we're not the thoughts, there's a, there's a sovereignty that emerges that, that, that we don't know is missing until it's returned. <laughs> this sovereignty, this, um, this dignity of being that, um, that somehow seems to, uh, we have the experience or the perception that it returns. And, um, well, and then what to do with it, you know, that's the nothing really. It's, it's just happiness, right? It's just peace of mind. Yeah, but I, I found it, I, I found it, um, when I first started meditating, for example, I, I actually, I, I joked that it should be outlawed by the Geneva Convention, um, meditation, because it was so painful for me. <laughs> to, to, to step back into awareness of what was happening in my mind was horrible, extremely disturbing. And I could only do it for, you know, 30 seconds at a time and would have to retreat into some distraction. Um, and it's disturbing. I mean, I, I, I found all levels of different levels of awareness or consciousness can be very disturbing at first. Um, and, then, and then somehow they, they release into something, you know, really sublime. <laughs> and, but, this, but this idea, I remember the, I remember, uh, Somebody saying, you know, you put you, in meditation, you put the frog on a plate, right? And if the frog, you know, starts to hop away, you bring and you put it back. For me, I tied a string to its to its leg, and I watched where it went. 
and I took notes, <laughs> right? Um, or more specifically, you know, the, the metaphor that I used for myself was I just, I watched thought, I watched what was happening with these thoughts and, and the, the sort of begetting that happens with thought and how quickly narratives develop to, to prove my, my original bias anyway, which is to protect and defend the egos. I'm right. You know? <laughs> and so I just watched what is the nature of thought? How does it behave? And I would let it go. Like, uh, like, um, uh, I went deep sea fishing a couple of times. I could never do that now, but anyway, it was, it was fun then. And, um, <laughs> And you just, you have to let the mind take the line. Otherwise it'll snap, you know? And then at some point you begin to, you know, pull back on. And, and I had this image of the mind being another aspect of me. And it would go off proving its, its original bias of something about you know, how so-and-so is a jerk or how I'm right and they're wrong, whatever it was. And it almost travels a reverse path, you know, to prove that point. And so I would ask it at some point, turn around, I would hand it a microphone, you know, and sort of visual imagery, prove it, prove that it's true. And so I would play this game with my own thoughts, right? Sounds crazy, I suppose, but it was wonderful. And, and eventually, you know, I'd hand the microphone to the, to the one who identified with the thought or the opinion. And he would just, he would just say, game's up, gigs up. You know, I can't prove it, you know? And what's, what's also super fun about that one, obviously, is that what was revealed in that dynamic was that if it's not love, it's not true. <laughs> what a hugely liberating thing that was and enabled me to clear out all manner of things in myself that, that were just weren't true. They were all about judgment of, of myself primarily that were then projected on other people. You know? <laughs> so this, this notion of trying to control the mind uh, yes, I think it's possible. And, and I would say in my own way, I've probably done some of that as well. But really knowing the, the, the patterns, you know, recognizing the patterns, pattern recognition, it's the whole game of um, exposing the, the sort of the false that obscures the truth. So I want to ask, what, what allowed you to get to that place from being stuck in the thoughts to now kind of liberating yourself, um, being very interested? So you're, you had these habits of, of thinking, judging, and the way you described yeah. it is beautiful. Something there was some other energy that was more powerful than that habit for you, which allowed you, which motivated you to investigate how everything was working and therefore move beyond it into a new place. You know, like an allegiance, you had allegiance to something else. Was it allegiance to truth was higher than your old ways of being? Is that what it was? Or was it, was it something else? such a great question this and there's the along the way there's so many different answers i mean one is briefly i i 
I had no choice in any of this. That, that, um, that, yeah, we can come back to that, but, but that I had no choice. There was no choice. And the recognition of, of that, I mean, it really, it, it sort of is the on-ramp to the, the, the contemplation of free will. But, but it, I recognized that, that as the one who was attached, who was, who was caught up in it and, and unconscious of the being caught up in it, that, that one had no free will. It was, I had this realization one day that I was a, I was a marionette doll and I did not know who was pulling the strings. <laughs> I called my therapist and I said, what had happened? All right. So what had happened was um, I, I called a, a meeting of the management team where I was working and I had some difficult news about the company's financials and, and to, to deliver. And, and I did a 15 minute meditation before I went in and I, you know, and my intention going into the meeting was to allow people to ask questions and to arrive at their own conclusions. So I didn't have to force feed them and make people uncomfortable. Well, at some point, this is some seven years ago, maybe it was eight years ago. At some point, one of the vice presidents turned to me and she said she didn't understand. And I, some, I think somehow I, I felt that threatening, you know? And so I just tr- turned on verbally just you know eviscerated humiliated and as it was happening Avi, i remember like somehow like it went slow motion like a car accident literally like for me that's that was the experience i could see the words coming out of my mouth and i could and there was another me behind all of that saying no <laughs> don't say it right and i and i saw the whole thing happening i was like this is three months repairing this relationship now just because and I was I was clearly it was happening and I had no control over I called my therapist afterwards and I said something is pulling my strings and I don't know what it is and this is untenable make it stop that was kind of the language that I used to use back this is untenable and so she said come in and it was one of the it was one of those moments of awareness of of the being at the mercy of mind and not understanding what mind was and the, and the, the deep, deeply woven threads of, of shame and vulnerability, uncomfortable with vulnerability, you know, all in this tapestry that I thought was me that I needed to defend or promote, you know, and it was kind of, it was, it was one of those poignant experiences that, and, and once, and once we see those kinds of things, then really, is it a choice? You know, do you, can you unring that bell? Can you unsee what's, what's been seen? And so, so while there, I felt like there was no choice, the choice that I had at that moment was to, to be honest with it, to, to face it. And, and this is what I call suffering, honestly, like, um, I, uh, I let it all, um, I did a deep dive on myself and did a lot of, uh, <laughs> did a lot of, <laughs> there, there was a phase I used to call it, um, sitting with my hand between my knees and t- 
tears and snot between my feet. That, that was that was what that phase of life was like. It was a, it was a great purgation or a, um, a releasing of of these old uh, definitions of self. You know, it reminded me of um, I think somewhere in the Bible, Jesus says, "Through the wound." It was through the wound that um, I sort of dove headlong in, into it. And and I must say, like, I understand why uh, we resist this, because because I can say I barely survived it. Um, <laughs> I, feel, I don't know how I did, uh, but so grateful, so grateful that I did. So. Yeah, so I guess those two things, suffering, honestly, and, and realizing that they're really I didn't have much of a choice. Um, you know, once we see what we see, I suppose we can pretend to deny it, but we all know that doesn't work. We all know what? That doesn't work to, to mm. pretend that we didn't see it. Mm. Do we all know that? <laughs> I'm not sure if we all do know that. I think, I think there's, there's a quite a popular tendency to, to deny and to live on the surface and a real feeling that that is a strategy for success to essentially run away from, from truth. Yeah. It's whistling in the dark. <laughs> of course, we don't know it. Yeah. We don't know it, but, but, but it's, it, we do know it because we see it in other people. We have, we have a, a detached ability to witness the dynamics in other people and, and have a sense, not always a hundred percent accurate, of course, but have a sense that they're in denial. If I can see it in another, this is a huge way to, to un, unbind oneself. If I can see this, a dynamic in another, I know it is true for me now in this moment, right? If, if this is happening in my perceived reality, it's because it's for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we've heard, you know, people say simple things. If you're pointing a finger, there are three pointing back at you like this. But, it, but it's in the process of, of creation. It's literally true. It's not just a quaint um, saying. Back to the suffering. Yeah. Suffering, honestly. <laughs> yeah, let's go back there. <laughs> it's like, why? Is it so difficult when we're in the midst of suffering to remember and to believe that there's, there will be some good that comes from this, that this is happening for me some kind of way, right? Like when, when, like I can know that intellectually, I can believe that, but when I'm actually suffering, it feels so challenging to believe that this is a good thing that's happening to me. It doesn't feel like a good thing at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's only in retrospect, right? <laughs> only in retrospect do I say, Oh, without, without that sour dose, I wouldn't have, I, I wouldn't have learned what I learned or unburdened myself in a way that I was able to because of the suffering. It's a, you know, Ram Dass referred to this as fierce grace because it we see in the rearview mirror, we see it as the greatest gift to 
it's a burning away of the faults. You know, suffering is not required. <laughs> pain is pain. Of course, we, we've heard this pain, of course, is just part of this, this experience, this Maya, the yogis call it. Right. But, um, but suffering is, is not at all required. And yet, absolutely seems to be a necessary part of the perceived experience in order to be free of the thing that causes suffering. Mm. And it's not the pain. <laughs> who, can, who can know that, that it's not the pain that causes suffering? <laughs> yeah. But, but to, to be in that, in that moment, I mean, that's, that's real. You know, I, I so, you know, and, and even with all of this, I can say that, you know, a few nights ago, I, I had a, a, a nerve pain that was intense. And I suffered that pain. <laughs> but, but at least, you know, luckily, I'm so grateful for this. I was aware that the one suffering that pain was not entirely real. The pain was real. You know, the body was real. The mind was real. And it had been a way of saying that. Right? The suffering was unnecessary, but there it was. And so I didn't try and push it away. I, I went deep into it. Yeah. If we, I remember um, in, in this, if we have this, this inkling of an idea that maybe it's not, it's not I that's, that's, a, you know, that's suffering this, if I can step behind it, what happens if I bring myself to the very, for me, it was, can I find the place in the body where this pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, can I bring my entire awareness? Like we do a body scan, but to bring a body scan into like a, a point like this, you know, just like, like that. And can I bring my entire beingness into the center of that and die there? <laughs> it's pretty intense. It's scary. But, um, but what, what I, what I realized is that there's no, well, while the experience of dying is very real, the dying itself is not real. There's nothing at stake. <laughs> there's there's nothing. Uh, there's nothing that's vulnerable. And of course, this is the trick because as we're navigating through our own psychology, our own emotional history, our own personalities, our relationships, we we have to hold with with this nurturing, loving, compassionate kindness. The, the one who feels this is real for me. And, and it's lucky if, if we can hold, on the other hand, the, the recognition that I, I am really the, the awareness that, that, that all of this happens within. And, and somehow there's a, there's a, you know, it's a bit of a dance in the middle of those two things. So it's never, it's never rejecting my suffering or saying I shouldn't be suffering or I should be better than this, you know. Um, it's not that it's, it's, it's surrendering into it, but also realizing that I'm held, I'm protected, I'm, I'm loved and, and I'm the one that's protecting and loving and holding. <laughs> mm. I mean, it's a bit of a mind bender really. And ultimately in that fear, I feel compelled to say in that fear that when, when I, when I brought myself in, into what felt like the extremity of, of dying into this intense fear um, that there was always a refuge for me in the heart. There were two places of refuge that, that if this, if it became too great and, and I really risked 
some sort of a psychic rupture. Um, I could come to the heart and I could also float. Uh, but I don't know if you can see on the screen somewhere about up here. Um, can just sort of bring my awareness to there and this ultimate protecting. It's like throwing a blanket over the entire thing, uh, a warm sort of. So I, I feel like that's that's important to to share, to not overdo this dying into the suffering because, yeah. So you believe that you are held and protected and loved. It's my, it's, I would say it's my experience and, and that it's, um, and, and this is kind of a fun thing too, is that, um, yes, I, I can assert from, from my experience that, that this is more true than, than the vulnerability and the fear. Um, and, and, and it, to get a little taste of that is a huge gift. And to cultivate that is, you know, is, is a wonderful way to, to be, to, to unbind oneself, you know. It seems like we want to hold on to this loneliness sometimes, right? And maybe that's like the falsehood. Like I want to, I'm alone, you know, um, as opposed to I'm a part of and I am held and protected and, and something loves me. There's, I think, a there could be a resistance there to opening up to that to that truth. If it is true, I believe it is. It's a fun. It's a so you can get a sense of what I like to do. I love to contemplate these things and and really, you know, just like go into that space and explore them. And loneliness um, and connectedness are, are it's a really powerful exploration of. Um, of who we think we are. Now, ultimately, um, you could say that uh, each one is completely alone and that beyond the resistance of that, there is no loneliness in that. <laughs> I mean, who could, who could imagine that? And, and simultaneously, it is also equally true that um, and actually from that and of that, we're totally connected. They're the separation. The, the, the experience of the separation seems to dissolve as the, the sense of the I-ness, the, the, the sense of I-ness becomes less and less localized to the, to the body and to the personality. And, and there really is this sort of sense of expanding. <laughs> And, um, but, the, but this, this comes from, in my experience anyway, I'm, I'm sure it can come from a lot of different angles. There's so many different ways to do this, but uh, for me, it, it came from really exploring what is this aloneness? What is this loneliness? At the depth of, of my despair, sitting there, refusing to move, getting to the place from which there is no exit and refusing to budge, what is the first thought? What's the first fear? <laughs> I almost drove myself mad with this, so <laughs> I caution, but, um, but I'm glad I did. And because it, it, the yogis call it asanga, 
the opposite of Sangha, completely alone, the one, you know, without, without, you know, a second. And yet from that place, it's all the one. There's nothing that's, that's not, you know, there's nothing that's not. I mean, how could there be just geometrically speaking or mathematically speaking? <laughs> Last thing I'd like to ask you about is compassion. Yeah. Cause we've, we, we spoke somewhat recently. We were talking about different concepts, words, and you shared with me that that compassion is one of the most important things for you. I've really been sitting with it because at that time it was like, okay, you know, kind of, I get compassion is important to be compassionate. But since then, I want to let you know that I've, I've really explored it and, and come to, to elevate it. Um, and it's like what we're talking about this, this, you know, being alone and, and together, All right. That I am totally regular, but I'm also unique. They, these, this, these dichotomies that almost like make no sense in, in, in life. Like when you start to explore the, the, the game a little bit and then to have compassion for how, even how confusing it is compassion for, for the situation that, that we're all in right now. So I want to be, yeah. I want to be grateful. I, I do see this as a wonderful adventure of life. I do totally do. Um, but at the same time, there's reason to have compassion and it feels very important now to me to remember compassion. So anything, anything to share about, about that, that from you is a practice to be compassionate. I mean, I, I think what one could say, it, it's, a, it's a very high wisdom, uh, compassion. It, it works at so many different levels of experience and consciousness and awareness. Ultimately, when, when each one comes to recognize that, that the, the outside world of experience is a reflection of, of one's own self, one's own past. The, the, the yogis call it karma. Um, the, you know, the Bible calls it sin, but that's, that's a whole different topic. It's been completely misunderstood <laughs> with the introduction of shame. But once, once we come into awareness that, that all of our experience are our waves bouncing off a distant shore returning to us. Then, then we can see that compassion, stillness, peace, softness is, is really the only antidote to suffering. That in the recognition that everything I experienced is a reflection of my own past the soul or the jiva, right? that 
that in a way, in that way, it's all me. And, and really the, the first compassion is the self-compassion. Um, so that I can soften, I can soften and allow. I can allow what's happening to happen and I can take a soft posture to not fight it, to not try and hurry it along, to not cling to it. And in that posture of compassion, the waves slowly lose their force because I'm not adding to it. The, the past loses its momentum. The, the surface of the water becomes calmer. And, and now, you know, we enter a realm that's dreamlike, heavenlike. Acceptance? And whatever is. That whatever is, is. And it can't not be. Because it's past. Playing is the now moment. It can't not be how it is. And my resistance to, to isness is insanity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't mean that I can't work to a better tomorrow or, you know, in a, in a way that's, that understands how that, that works. But, um, but yeah, to, to be in resistance to this, this you know, this now moment in, in space and time is crazy because we don't, yeah, yeah. And compassion, you know, and, and if we can't get the compassion, I think forgiveness is a wonderful, wonderful way to get to compassion and compassion, a wonderful way to get to love, agape or unconditional, you know, blissful love abiding. And, and for, for me, the I, will, I want to say the Ho'oponopono prayer was uh, absolutely transformed um, my experience of myself and others. But that was, that was the vehicle of forgiveness that, that I was lucky to stumble across. And, um, so yeah, um, I, I, think, I think compassion is, is really a very high wisdom. It's a, it's a recognition of, of, of how all of this works. Um, that there is no judgment other than self-judgment. You know, there's, there's no love other than self-love. It's not possible. Laws of nature, not possible. <laughs> it, disturbing, I suppose, at first, but... Uh, but that, that alone will absolutely, for the one who can hold on to the tail of that tiger, <laughs> they'll be free. <laughs> Love thy neighbor as thyself, because that's what it is. It's not an aspiration, it's a reality. <laughs> Just becoming aware of what is. Being okay with it. Yeah. That's liberation, right? That's freedom. It's sanity. <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's purely practical also. Yes, it's liberation, but it's purely 
pragmatic. Right. How absurd is it to be, you know, in resistance to, to this moment, you know, as, as we like to say in the spiritual world, this now moment. <laughs> mm. And yet, and yet that's, that's, you know, that's how we, that's how we do it. So. And that's not a problem, right? I mean, it's really one of the things that to me, Avi, that, that as I look uh, through, you know, sift through my own experiences is, is how often shame came around to, to, to try and transform the, the, the way I was understanding things that through the, you know, through the, um, that, that, that opacity of shame or through the, the lens distortion of shame, it, it, uh, it's not helpful. It actually is the double bind, you know, the, the, the thing that the judge, the judger to, um, to suffer the sufferer shame is, uh, uh shame, you know, <laughs> it's tricky. It's a weird thing that I think has happened. I consider it. It's like, how, how did that even come to be that, that shame? Cause I, I mean, there's a part of me that says that it's not natural and then everything that is, is natural. So, okay. Um, but for me, the real lesson there is the power of, of community. Um, because, you know, I think we've been born all of us into this world where, you know, it's all about the, the little, the little eye and the self. And that's where the shame can come from. There's like obsession over the self of who, who I am. I have something that I need to prove and I'm constantly just analyzing what I am, how good I am. And, uh, for me, I could say, you know, I just, I I've become totally exhausted from, from doing that. Yes. Um, yeah. And I, I just, I really pray and have a lot of um, trust, faith that we will move into a place where it, we, we get beyond ourselves in that kind of way. It just becomes like this old game. That's not interesting anymore. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's right. And, and it's, and it's funny. I mean, the, the shame, I think it, in the recognition that I am this, I did this, this is, this is my past playing out, you know, dressed up as the, this now moment that it's all karma. You know, if you use the concept of this, everything here is karma. Can't not be. The, the shame is the, still the lingering identity. That's the separate one that says, I shouldn't have done this. Right. I, I, you know, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Right. You, from this point of seeing, you can understand how, you know, some of the early Christian monks would flagellate and wear camel hair and, you know, really extreme tapas and all of that, to use a yogic term. The shame is, is not helpful. And, um, and it can, it can be useful to know that from, from that limited identity, there's no free will. And that's both good news and bad news. And this is a debate, you know, I don't mean to oversimplify it, but, you know, but just for this, um, it's not really a debate. It's nuanced. The, 
that one doesn't have a lot of free will. There's a limited latitude. And so from who I thought I was, I didn't have a choice but to think and do what I thought and did. And, and now recognizing that I can be easy with it. Like there's a, there's a forgiveness in that, a self-forgiveness in that. And unless I use that as an excuse to go out and do harm or be selfish in a worldly way, then, then I release myself from, from recreating new loops of suffering. So I, th I think that, that the shame arises from the lingering, you know, the, the, the dissolving, but, but the, the part that lingers, that remains that's, that's part of the separate identity, the, the psyche, that that one feels a sense of, of guilt and unworthiness in the face of the God that's becoming more and more apparent, hasn't yet completely merged with it, but is having a direct one-to-one -one experience of the beloved. And uh, this beautiful process of, of of being held in that and prostrating to that, and, um, and eventually, slowly, with grace, you know, merging, merging with it. But the shame is in in a way. I, I think. It makes me think that change is best done lightly. Yeah. Yeah, that, Avi, I wish somebody had told me a lot earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Th there was uh, one, of the, one of the first things that I heard from that inner voice was soften and allow. And um, it just seems to cover everything I encountered, you know? And, and I, as yogis, I, I think of this as an energetic, psychological asana, of soften and, and allow to um, it's a balanced pose for sure. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Dr. Raj, thank you so much, brother. Yeah, I love you, Avi. I love you, thank too. You. Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this content and think others might as well, please feel free to share and subscribe.